cross-generational podcast dedicated to discovering and rediscovering the social, political, and personal impact of the Mary Tyler Moore Show. I'm your host, Ariel Fisher. And I'm Sylvia McCon. And welcome to the show, guys. This week we have episode eight, Thoroughly Unmilitant Mary. <laughs> which is a take on Thoroughly Modern Millie, which is a movie. Yeah, that, that was a movie with, with Mary Tyler Moore. Moore. And Julie Andrews, set in, like, the flapper era. And I have to admit, I turned it off. I tried watching it. It's really awful. It's a little too shticky and a little too silly for me. It's a bit beyond my taste. And that's coming from somebody who enjoyed burlesque. So what's that saying? But this week, the episode is, according to IMDb, the television newswriters union goes on strike. Other guilds and unions follow. And Mary has to cross the picket line. That's a pretty apt general summation. Uh, the episode was written by Martin Cohan and directed by Jay Sandrich and, of course, stars all the usual players. So we actually struggled a little bit with this one. A little bit. It's we- been it, since we first watched it. I think it's been something like three or four months. Just about. Yeah. We uh, we tried to find some back history, I suppose, on <clears throat> where were there strikes in that field in that union mm-hmm. environment and there weren't any at that particular time there were some before i believe there, yeah there were some, some after. before and they but they weren't particularly monumental no. there was in 1967 the first national strike from aftra the american federation of television and radio artists which is that strike isn't brought up in this episode but ted is a member of aftra unbeknownst to Ted (laughs) and and they are one of the other unions that goes on strike while the writers are are on strike but there was also in 1970 in terms of union strikes that were monumental in 1970 there was the U.S. postal strike during which time two roughly 210,000 unionized postal workers went on strike it started in New York and then it wound up spreading nationwide at which point uh, Nixon had called in the National Guard to assist with everything which didn't lend much of a hand Uh, but the strike was so effective that everything took that negotiations took place within two weeks and everything wrapped up because essentially they put a complete stop to the entirety of the postal service and in 1970 the postal service was a big deal a very big deal less so in some ways i suppose yeah yeah. So that was, and that and that strike was a big deal. They talk about that strike in uh, Good Girls Revolt, the show that had one season on uh, on Amazon Prime, which yeah, okay. I've talked about before on the show. So if I, I encourage you, if you're interested in feminism and 1970s and newspapers, uh, you're set. 
it's perfect. You're golden. Go watch it. But so we struggled to come up with something to talk about this week because admittedly, we don't know much about unions. Neither of us have ever been in a union. We've never participated with any kind of union activity. No. I've been very fortunate that in my working life, I haven't had, I suppose, fortunate. Some people might think differently. Mm -hmm. Um, I think in, and we're in Canada, so we have socialized medicine and I've worked in healthcare my whole life. And I think historically... um, a lot of groups, healthcare groups, um, uh, management or hospital uh, um, executives mm-hmm. have tried to match whatever was out there in a unionized environment so that you wouldn't bring in a union. Exactly. And there have been a couple of situations where um, they've threatened to bring in unions and people at the top got fired for allowing that level of unrest to even exist. So I was like, really? Okay. You're so upset. Damn you for bringing it, for causing this. You're fired. Right. Yeah, pretty much. That's yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. So I've never had the opportunity to work in a unionized environment. Having said that, my now former employer within the lab, the lab is a unionized mm. environment. Was it a unionized environment then or it became no, a unionized? No, it became since. And it creates, no more than what we see in the show here, mm-hmm. it creates a, a real chasm between management and non-management mm-hmm. in that you are on different sides of a divide and you have to promote your end to get things done. And, yeah. and, the, and the union... The unionized people end up having the mindset that the union will protect them against all the injustices that management throws at them. In which it doesn't tend to. And it generally doesn't work well. No. Yeah. And at the time of recording this, uh, there was a lot going on with uh, IATSE Local 58 with them going on strike and then being locked out. Of the CNE. Of the CNE. Mm. And they had been... uh, it's it's an organization that it's a union for stagehands. Carnies. Well, sort of, but they but they don't just do stuff at the CNE. They work a bunch of different contracts right. for 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 a lot of different uh, event spaces and everything throughout uh, throughout Canada, really, and, right. and throughout Ontario. But the thing here is that they were a lot. They management refused negotiations, mm. and then they. Uh, they were locked out and then they were trying to they management was trying to convince them to wait until after the X to pick it right as if they have a leg to stand on <laughs> like oh just you know hang on you know wait until our busiest season is over to make your point and your stand and then you have nothing to stand on mm-hmm. to to clarify for those who don't live in the Toronto area yes. the CNE is the Canadian National Exhibition and it is a giant um fair i suppose that has uh, well, has been going on the for x's yeah because the, the, C- the cne is the grounds is the it? grounds yeah the exhibition is a yearly event mm-hmm. that is beloved by ontarians and torontonians in particular um they have rides they have booths they have food they have junk like the ultimate junk food is oh, showcased yeah. at this uh, at this event it used to be um, more agricultural as well. And they still have a lot of agricultural stuff involved yeah. where you can go and look at like the prize pigs and <laughs> the prize sheep and the prize 
goat. goats, you know. The other thing that they used and to cars. have, and I don't know that they still do, is like new electronics. Like they used to have like ladies step over here to see the most beautiful new stove you can have in your home kind yeah. of thing. The Better Living Center. I feel like called. they I think the building they still s- exist. It does. And I think yeah. they do still have that during the X. They've okay. got they they have everything. And in yeah. terms of the food, it's kind of always a race to see who can come up with the most disgusting food for that year. Yeah. And you know, like deep fried Mars bar, deep fried Mars bars, deep fried butter. Like you had <laughs> seriously, they had like balls of deep fried Where's butter Homer one year. Simpson? Seriously, I know. And the cronut, I think, found yeah. its home there. Yes. Or there was like a cronut burger. Like it was really disgusting. I think it gave everybody salmonella. Oh. Or something, something along like those that. lines. Because it's not mm, chicken, nice. so maybe not salmonella. It's not chicken, but... But alas, it may seem that the people of Toronto are faced with the quandary of whether or not they should be crossing a picket line mm. to go to the fair. And it's Although they're like, not management or no. anything. They're members of the public. But... Yeah. No, with respect to crossing the picket line, that's something that obviously comes up uh, on in this episode because we find out that Mary is management, yeah, Lou is management, and Ted initially is still able to do the news for a short time because his union at that point hadn't um, hadn't joined the strike hadn't joined the strike, and then after I think one day mm-hmm. it joins the strike. So all these other unions join the newswriters' strike. Mm-hmm. So they end up, so Mary has to cross the picket line. Well, yeah, they had to, as soon as they went on strike, they knew they would have to cross the picket line. Management would have to come in and work. And they're they're doing the jobs of everybody else at this, at this mm-hmm. point, right? They have to write the news reports. They have to operate the cameras. They have to operate the boom mics. They have to do everything because there's literally no one there to do it. And there was actually something in that that kind of struck me as interesting and maybe a talking point is when... Lou says that Mary is going to be responsible for writing all of his reports now because Murray is literally writing up the last one as as news breaks that they're going on strike. Murray panics. They get they get something off of the news feed and he starts typing it out and it's about them going on strike. And he get one of his coworkers interrupts him. No, man, you're on strike now. Like, stop and pulls it out and hands it to Lou. And Ted gets stuck on screen trying to recite a, a, a mostly non-existent uh, news report, right? And can't, he fumbles through trying to ad-lib it on his own. But when they say, when Lou says, Mary's going to write them, Ted's all, oh, wonderful, spectacular. And then turns away and actually says, that girl is no news writer. Yeah. And it's this kind of idea that it's, at least in my mind, what I'm getting is that there's this complete lack of trust in... in Female writers? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. In women to be able to do things like that. Yeah. So that when it comes to crunch time, instead of... Even just on a day-to-day, the the difference in atmosphere then versus now, which really, to be fair, is still a bit of a struggle, because writing is a boys' club still. It's the lack of faith in a woman's ability to operate to to take over a man's job is like no she couldn't do that no and they're still very prescribed yeah this is a man's job this is a woman's job yeah and the calling her a girl thing (sighs) that never gets that never feels better i mean it was the time and it's kind of like and that was the way it was and it created a 
a moment of comedy then. Mm-hmm. I think now pretty much everyone who would wince. Would, would wince at that because it's just so wrong. Completely. Yeah. No, Having said that, wrong. Mary does try to write copy for Lou, who is going to be actually um, uh, take, uh, replacing Ted as mm-hmm. Ted goes on the picket line. And Mary writes very beautifully, but I guess not as sharply and directly and punchy as Ted, as, as Lou expects. It's too, it's, it's too, it's too it, fluffy. It's too fluffy. It's too fluffy. It's a novel, not a, not a newscast. Yeah, exactly. It's creative fiction as opposed to trying, you know, a tidal wave is interesting enough on its own, Mary. <laughs> and that whole spiel. But it, it is strange that even in that kind of a situation, you know, she overthinks it. Yeah. She's been given this opportunity to do Murray's job, to do a man's job, and is essentially put, not put down, but it's strange. You spend your whole life wanting to do certain things, and then you get to a point, and you're consistently told that, oh, women don't do that. Women mm. don't work those jobs. Like, you growing up were told on a regular basis that, you know, you're a woman. You should become a teacher or a nurse or and i and i rebelled only slightly by being a lab tech which is still mostly a female profession but slightly less so still a rebellion you weren't a, you weren't a nurse or a teacher i wasn't teacher. a nurse or a teacher no, no or an no. assistant no i wasn't an assistant which, i was the boss yeah which i have had to do many times i be, I be boss um but the other interesting thing that that we discussed earlier with respect to in a situation like this, it's kind of all hands on deck. Mm-hmm. So you have to pick up the slack and do the job that needs to be done, whether you feel competent to do it or not, which brings up the whole imposter syndrome Oh yeah, and the whole, can I do this? I've never done this before, but this is a crisis, so I have to step up and do it. Mm-hmm. And I think it kind of highlights how important everyone's job is and how non-transferable your skills can be in a moment like this mm-hmm. where you think how hard can it be oh guess what it's hard well exactly there's this complete misconception for the arts in general we mm. have it, and and i'm sure a lot of when you think about it people in the arts are predominantly underpaid they're predominantly yes. underemployed, underutilized, and undervalued. And it's it's very easy to go, well, what about the Jennifer um, the Jennifer Lawrences of the world and the Ryan Reynolds of the world and all that? That's not society's engagement with the arts. That's society's engagement with celebrity. With celebrity and stardom. Which, yeah. which of course, that gets money. There's tons yeah. of money in celebrity because celebrity celebrity is a constant has has constant returns. It's it's you put in millions of dollars because it gets you millions of dollars. But people don't see the value in investing in in showrunners and in investing in production assistants, production and assistants, all those other people. Exactly. Yeah. And and news writers and things like that. Yeah. And and I have since started doing I, I am pretty consistently working as a freelance copywriter now. I can tell you even I had some preconceived notions about how easy it would be because and I I, I am. I, I won't you've been humbled I well I've been humbled I won't hesitate to 
It is a good thing to acknowledge when we are competent and even quite good at a skill. Yes. And I am good at this. I. It is important to... Clap, 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 applause. To be confident in, in our own time. abilities and Absolutely. not that, you know, inherent female modesty that's like, well, you know, I guess I'm okay. No, no, no. You're good. I. This is a job that I do and it's a job that I do well. But it is, it is hard. You mm. can have a simple task... And have to write 500 words on whatever for some blog post for another company. And it you have an hour and a half to do it. And you have to kind of, that hour and a half winds up being spread out sometimes over like three or four hours. Because you have to walk away from it because you're sitting in front of the computer wasting your time not being able to come up with what you need. So you have a small budget and a tight amount of time to turn around a piece that's going to be able to not only be perfectly readable and grammatically correct, good punctuation, but it's going to drive marketing and sales. Because that's really the bottom line. Exactly. And so it takes time. It takes a lot of time to spend very little time doing something perfectly yeah which is yeah and and that takes money and it and does. you see that talent yeah and you see that here in someone with specifically with murray and mary tries to do it and it gets she overthinks it and it spends too much time on it which so many writers do is you kind of get to in your own head and it just becomes it's just too much it's too mm. big it's too too fluffy too flowery um it's not news it's not blunt and to the point and it can be very difficult to be very straightforward in your writing style because you think it's too simple exactly and you look at what murray does and even just reading out the little bit that ted reads out at the very beginning of the new of of the news broadcast you look at that and think oh well that's so easy i could anybody can do that but it's just not true the hardest thing to do is to be concise and be concise and convincing yes to sell what you're doing and you really see that here and you get that idea right that idea of not all jobs are just because it's in the arts doesn't mean that that misconception doesn't mean that that idea that the arts are simple like oh my kid could paint that i could write that a monkey could do this a monkey can do it a monkey with a typewriter yeah and it's just not true and then and then there's lou when he tries to sub for Ted. And even though we know that Ted is like the worst newscaster in America Mm -hmm. at that point, uh, Lou trying to be Ted is in some ways even worse than Ted (laughs) because he's so nervous. He's clammy. He says he's a walking clam. He's a walking clam. He's a walking clam. And he's super nervous. He does not like public speaking, which I think is one of the probably top top 10 fears of every human. Oh, yeah. And uh, does a terrible job the first day because he barely goes above a whisper. And you see the boom mic coming down into into the visible screen. So that kind of like, speak louder, please. And he does for about 10 seconds. It's always funny to try and spot because you can see that even just on certain sitcoms where you yeah. can spot the you can spot the boom. Yeah, but that's it's done so well. It's really well done. And Asner is so good. And and then he drinks. And, and the next he day he's perfect yep. because he had a pre-show several drinks yeah. and it worked really well for him. He had a pre-show Mickey and he turned out okay. Yeah. But it's liquid courage, right? There's a reason why they say that. And there's a reason why so many people in show business 
or alcoholics or, or yeah or alcoholics or addicts of some kind because it, it which is strange because you'd think why would you get into a business that's so difficult if you need to but that's really just the way that it goes which is such a crying shame um you me i, I recall way back like me. in school in yeah. little girl school little girl school you like public speaking did i really i believe you did that must have been before I had to do my speech on the Titanic and everybody laughed at me. And then when I went to sit down, Tristan pulled the chair out from behind me when I went to sit and I hurt my bum. No. Oh, yeah. I think that was like in grade three. That's terrible. Three or four. Something like that. Oh. oh. Yeah. Yeah. But I liked public speaking, really. I believe you did. Well, yes. I mean, we're here now and doing a are, podcast. And we are public speaking, but you don't see our faces. <laughs> but we're being listened to by so many people. Around the world. Around the world. And we are proud <laughs> of our accomplishment. But it is hard to pub- to speak in public, I guess. If you take that kind of a vantage point on things and like in terms of what we can talk about at this about this episode, because there really isn't a lot. Public speaking is hard. It is. It is. It's it's kind of well, I recently had to do it. Oh well, yes. I recently had to give a eulogy and it was for my sister and it was heartbreaking to do and yet and people came up to me afterwards and said that was amazing I don't know how you did it and I obviously wrote it myself and I wrote it the night before and it just wrote itself Mm -hmm. it was it comes from the heart it wrote itself and then when I said it when I stood up in front of a fairly large group and then I said it and it was the first sentence or two I thought no I'm gonna cry no I'm gonna cry this is not good this is not good and I kind of said to myself girl pull up your socks get on it this is important you only get one chance and then it just flowed Mm -hmm. and it was uh so I mean it's a very different kind of situation from being a professional in front of a mic and a screen Mm -hmm. but uh, but at the same time it's being put in positions where we need to speak publicly inherently forces us into a vulnerable position yes. that most people never go into willingly. No, most people are absolutely petrified mm-hmm. of being in that position. And especially in the position of having to give a eulogy, which, by the way, to reiterate, you gave beautifully. Thank you. Is is really to force yourself into probably one of the most vulnerable positions, mm-hmm. especially in public. Mm-hmm. And that is, that's, that's hard. That's very difficult. You, in, in that situation, not as much, but in terms of a general public speaking, you subject yeah. yourself to scrutiny. Very much so. And again, yeah. in, in terms of a eulogy, not so much. No, no because <laughs> people are going to give you the benefit of the doubt no matter what you do. And I think you'd have to come across some pretty terrible people to go to a funeral and say, say well, mm, you did a really bad job. Your delivery was really subpar. Yes. I think Ted Baxter could have done better. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. No, that's no, not a thing. No, no, that's not a thing. But I did give an impromptu um, toast at a wedding. You did? Yeah. Oh, God, that just reminded me of what I did at your wedding. Oh, that's okay. But that didn't work out the way I planned. Because people didn't get it. No, because people didn't follow instruction. Right. I had printed sheets that had the music. A little... A little Little backstory. A little backstory. Uh, When my mom and my stepdad got married, which was how many years ago now? Ten. Holy crap. Um, So ten years ago they got married. You've been together, what, 18 years, 20 years? Mm Mm-hmm. That... 
blows my mind a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so 10 years ago, you got married. And I decided that instead of a speech, I was going to sing you guys a song. And specifically, I wanted to sing Say a Little Prayer for You. Which is so apropos because our dearly recently departed Aretha Franklin yep. sang it as well. She wasn't the one. No, this was in, Dionne Warwick. This was Dionne Warwick. But, but, she, did but she did as well. Yes. And uh, <laughs> we're recording this in, in, in August, just FYI. Um, you're probably listening to this in October or something. I don't know. Anyway. We'll see. We'll see. But... <laughs> We, um, yeah, so I, I wanted to sing that because my mom and I love my best friend's wedding and the scene with Rupert Everett singing, uh, say a little prayer for you with Julia Roberts and all of the lobster claws and the the dancing and the singing and everybody kind of joins in. And it was really, it's a lovely, fun scene. It's great. Yeah. And it's got this whimsy to it and this romance. And so my goal was to recreate this for them so that they could be surrounded by people singing. So I get a bunch of this was, I was, I was working at the same hospital as my mom Mm -hmm. and I, I knew a bunch of her friends at work and I'd known them since I was a baby anyway. So they knew me and i'd coordinated with them and on our lunch breaks we got together a couple of days in a row i did not know this yes <laughs> and i walked them through it and i played them the scene and i like told them exactly where to go to listen to it and to see how it goes through and i wrote a script i wrote a script that i printed off for everybody basically with all of the with all of the lyrics and with their cues saying you know teresa you come in here debbie you come in here da 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 Lucy, you come in here. And like all of those things. And nobody came in here. And then, and I, and I gave it to them and everything and I got started and I'm looking at them and as their cues are coming up, they're not joining in. Uh. And so I'm stuck there in front of like 80 people singing a song, expecting that I would have had backup and kind of sitting there just panicking like, oh God, oh God, oh God, this isn't, nobody's going to understand. This was supposed to be different and just freaking out. And I had to, uh, I kind of, it kind of became like uh, you standing in front of the audience going, come on, everybody, join on in. And it totally lost its impact. Oh, I was, I was, I was trying to replicate the dancing lobster claws. Absolutely. And I, and I, and I get it, but I think people, it, it, you have to be a movie person to Yeah, but I was showing it. them the scene. So they should have stepped up. And they they should have. I am disappointed. They owe you big. They owe me huge. Yeah. For mortification. There's video of this too. Yeah. Yeah. Who's got a video of it? I, I, Somebody I, must. I hate to break I hate to say it, but I think I have it on Facebook somewhere. I'm uh, pretty sure I made it private though. Good. But I th- it exists. It, there's proof that this we'll happened. We'll keep it private then. Yeah, we'll keep it private. But 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 yes, to to the point. Public speaking is and especially hard. public singing is hard. It is hard. It is difficult. Yeah. So our sympathies with Lou Grant no for kidding. all of his yes. uh, all of his effort. And he drank, and everyone at the wedding was drinking. So it they should have they should have clued in. Doubly and so. There's no, no excuse. Yeah, there's no excuse. Absolutely not. No. But that's uh, yeah. So again, it, it was a bit of a simple episode. Honestly, yeah. this was a bit of a throwaway for us. We, you know us. We talk. We can and talk a lot. We can talk a lot. And when there is something to talk about, our episodes are close to an hour. But considering there was not much to talk about, and we did the best we can. And I guess it's not, you really shouldn't show the strings behind the puppet, but I guess I'm kind of letting that one slide. And that's okay. But thank you guys for coming along for episode eight. 
thoroughly unmilitant Mary. And then next week, you'll be listening to episode nine. And now, sitting in for Ted Baxter, not without reason, Ted is worried that his mandatory vacation might become a permanent one. The episode is directed by Jerry Paris, who I don't believe we've seen as of yet. And it was written by Steve Pritzker, who we have seen as, as a writer on, on many episodes okay. at this point. So tune in next week when we discuss that. And in the meantime, if you haven't yet, you can find us on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, no matter what country you're in. Write us a little review, just 10 short words, something quick and quippy and how you feel about the show, because it will help us become more visible for other people so that they can find the show and enjoy our rambling antics as well. You can find us on all major, all other major podcasting networks as well as we are on uh, Stitcher, the Pocket Casts app, and Google Play Music. And you can also find us on social media on iTunes, uh, iTunes, that's not social media, on Instagram, that's the word, Twitter and Facebook at After All Podcast. Or you can shoot us an email at afterallpodcast at gmail.com. We love to hear from you and we and we love to engage with you. So if you want to get involved, shoot us a message and we'll get in touch. And uh, until next time.